0: Welcome to Conservative One, the podcast defending traditions and freedoms with George Christensen. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never. never. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. Socialists don't like ordinary people choosing, for they might not choose socialism. We cannot afford to be so politically correct anymore. Conservative One. Well, g'day, I'm George Christensen, Australian Member of Parliament, and your host here at Conservative One, the podcast defending traditions and freedom. And I've got a very special guest on today. He has been described as the Imam of Peace. I'm talking about Imam Muhammad Tawhidi. He is a reformist Muslim. He was born in Iran. He did his studies at the Al-Mustafa University in Qom, Iran. And he has now gone on to lead or be the president of the Islamic Association of South Australia, which is an organization he founded in 2016. He is very outspoken on a range of issues regarding radical Islam or some of the radical elements that we see ascribed to the islamic religion and so this is going to be a very interesting conversation and i welcome you to my podcast imam to how are you doing
1: i'm re- i'm doing really good josh thank you so much for having me really appreciate it greetings to you and your listeners
0: thank you very much and firstly how did you get the moniker of the imam of peace
1: well it was a gathering with myself and my friends And basically, we were discussing the challenges that we were facing by the media that tried to paint me as a sectarian person. And one of them said, you should actually explain to them that you are an imam for peace. You're an imam of peace. And that's when it began. And then I embraced that title uh, Mm -hmm. for myself. And I realized that we live in a society where people uh, like to put you in a box, uh, sometimes based on... Everyone understanding, yes, because
0: that that has been one of the criticisms that's been levelled at you by probably some of the more hardcore, extreme Muslims that are out there. They say that you are sectarian, you are a Shia Muslim rather than a Sunni Muslim, and the majority, I believe, the majority of Muslims in Australia would probably be. Of the sunni branch of islam can you elaborate a little bit on that i understand it but for my listeners what's the main difference between sunni and shia and can you just rebut this sort of sectarian claim that people throw at you
1: oh yeah definitely islam is made of two denominations the sunni and the shia the sunni denomination makes up around 85% of the religion, so they're the majority, and we are the minority. And within Shia Islam, there are other minorities, the same way within Sunni Islam, there are other minorities. So even within Shia Islam, I come from a minority within the minority. Now what is the difference between these two denominations these two school, schools of thought take their teachings from different channels so the Sunni school of thought follows the companions of the Prophet Muhammad and mm-hmm. the Shia Muslims follow the family of the mm-hmm. Prophet Muhammad some companions of the Prophet are also his family members as in, in in-law and and so on through marriage and uh, the Shia don't recognize them as a real family or first family or household, shall I say. That means that we reject certain holy and sacred figures in Sunni Islam the same way mm-hmm. they reject holy and sacred figures in Shia Islam. Just like mm-hmm. Christianity and uh, Judaism, we have our denominations and it's not normal. But why I am called sectarian is because I don't uh, draw the line when speaking about mm-hmm. the icons of the sunni school of thought mm-hmm. basically it's not about freedom of speech that i well i do believe in freedom of speech but the main issue is if i'm speaking about someone who existed over a thousand years ago, and I'm discussing their political motives, then to me, they're a political figure, and I can discuss that person. Mm-hmm. And if they are married to the Prophet Muhammad, such as his wife Aisha, uh, whom I've criticized in the past and even in my book, the Sunnis will say, well, you're criticizing our mother in faith. She's, she's the most sacred female in Sunni Islam. Mm-hmm. To me, she's the wife of my prophet. So I also have the right to speak about uh, issues concerning the life of my prophet and his family. So Mm. there is no sectarianism. I'm not saying uh, that I'm saved and they're going to go to hell. It's nothing like that. It's just discussing certain issues involving certain people in history Mm. that impact how Muslims think today. And because they don't want to have that conversation, they shut me down by saying, oh, that's sectarian." when it really isn't sectarian, It's just discussing the family of my own prophet. I'm a Muslim. I have every right to do that.
0: You've also spoken out about some of the practices that both Sunnis and Shia Muslims would engage in across the world. So that is probably proof in point that your arguments, what you put forward, is not something that's based in sectarianism. It's something that's based in the reformist movement of Islam, hundred percent, yeah,
1: and great. to to add, my book, uh, the tragedy of Islam, has yes. an entire chapter on the difficulties within Shia Islam. That's my school of thought, and yeah. not one chapter about Sunni Islam. So, so tell us, focus- where can
0: we? Where can people get that book from? T- tell us the title again. What is the title?
1: The tragedy of Islam. It was published in December two thousand eighteen. It became uh, number four uh, in the country Mm -hmm. uh, in in six hours, and I uh, maintained that for three days. Uh, It's on Amazon, and the updated edition is coming out this year.
0: When's that coming out exactly? Later in the year? Have you been working on that during the lockdown of the pandemic? Yes, (laughs) yes, yes.
1: I've been been writing a bit, but hopefully December as well. So two years since the publication, Mm -hmm. I'll be releasing... Uh, the updated version with a chapter as to how laws are actually derived within Islam and Sharia law.
0: Well, I look forward to that, Imam Tawidi, and I'll I'll hit you up for a signed copy. Definitely. But uh, the Muslim reform movement, it's been going for quite a while. I mean, I've got an extensive library on issues relating to Islam. I'm reading from a book here dating back to 2003, actually. It's called The Trouble with Islam Today a wake-up call for honesty and change. It was written by a man by the name of Irshad Manji who who said this. I just think it's such a, a great quote that I just want to read this, uh, uh, not in full, but, but paraphrase a bit. He says, I have to be honest with you. Islam is on very thin ice with me. I'm hanging on by my fingernails in anxiety for what's coming next from the self-appointed ambassadors of Allah. When I consider all the fatwas being hurled by the brain trust of our faith, I feel... Utter embarrassment, don't you? I hear from a Saudi friend that his country's religious police arrest women for wearing red on Valentine's Day. And I think, since when does a merciful God outlaw joy or fun? I read about victims of rape being stoned for adultery, and I wonder how a critical mass of us can stay stone silent. When non Muslims beg us to speak up, I hear you gripe that we shouldn't have to explain the behaviour of other Muslims, yet when we're misunderstood, we fail to see it's precisely because we haven't given people a reason to think differently about us. On top of that, when I speak publicly about our failings, the very Muslims who detect stereotyping at every turn then stereotype me as a sellout. A sellout to what? To moral clarity? To common decency? To civilization. I read that and I thought of you, Imam Tawheedi, because you have been attacked by other Muslims for speaking out on areas where uh, you feel that the Islamic faith needs reform. How has that made you feel as an Imam, as a person of the Muslim faith?
1: Um, I feel uh, sorry for the people that don't know me and take information from the media uh, that is very uh, biased. Uh, as for myself, I I don't have a problem. I'm a well-established imam. I served in the highest uh, Islamic jurisdictions in Iran. Uh, I uh, presided over several uh, Sharia courts, also as part of the jury and also with, with courts that relate to clerics. Um, I'm an advisor to members of of several governments in the Middle East, so I am well established, and and these claims uh, and accusations don't really matter to me. I know yeah. who I am. I have my history. It's just that Australia, or the West in general, hasn't seen someone like me. Well, hadn't seen someone like me five years ago. I I only surfaced to the scene around 2017. And completely understandable that these uh, accusations would come out, sectarian, you know uh, mm-hmm. troublemaker, attention seeker, all of that. But I want to answer your question about reformation. The word reform is not the the word used by reformists in Arabic because reform basically is is used to translate the word Islah and Islah means to fix. But you can't fix what's not broken. All Muslims, whether they are open-minded, reformist, secular, fundamentalist, they will all tell you that the Quran is perfect. No Muslim will say the Quran is not perfect, regardless of their denomination, regardless how secular, uh, How it, it doesn't matter. All Muslims believe that the Quran is perfect. Every word, every vowel, every full stop, there, there's no way it can be anything other than that. So if it's not broken, um, and if there's no problem with it, then it cannot be perfected. Mm -hmm. So reform to begin with is a very problematic term. The Mm -hmm. other issue that makes it very problematic is who has been using the term reform. You see, Osama Bin Laden used to claim that he was a reformist. Uh, Al-Baghdadi said he was a reformist. Secular Muslims say they're reformists. So you've got different types of reform. I believe that islam will never be reformed through scripture simply because most muslims do not read scripture so to give mm. you an example someone like ilhan omar who's sitting in congress uh bashing the jews and and proper yeah. values she can't read the quran she she can't read the quran maybe she will know a few short chapters but people like that don't read the quran and uh certainly can't read Arabic, so most of the original works in Arabic can't be read by most of the Muslims in Africa, most of the Muslims in Asia, well, in in Indonesia, Malaysia, and so on. These are highly populated Muslim countries. So uh, Muslims don't have that strong bond with, with scriptures, and even if they did, it would need a special level of education to be able to deduct and understand and and derive at what scripture means and how it's supposed to be interpreted. Mm -hmm. So scripture is never really the way to to fix and reform and make a religion more compatible. What needs reform is the Muslim mentality. It is the Muslim society, and social reform is the way forward. Let me give you an example. Saudi Arabia beheads people. The UAE doesn't behead people. Both mm-hmm. are Muslim, both are Sunni. So the difference is Dubai and the UAE and Abu Dhabi, they've changed their mentality and society has undergone a reformation where uh, such behavior next door is no longer acceptable in their country. Whereas Saudi Arabia is now going through that social reformation. You see these concerts and and stoning has been outlawed and, and things like that, uh, women are allowed to drive now, this, this is not scripture that's being reformed, this is not an education curriculum, this is society that is being reformed and slowly it becomes the norm and, and then that becomes the identity and culture of the Muslims, that's the only way forward, a social reformation, anything to do with scripture or politics will never work
0: which you could say is almost the, the word reform also means uh, to remake to to make as it was when we reform something we're taking it back to what it what it used to be you know some people dispute this but it's, it's it's true to say that a large part of the um of the history of the islamic world the ancient islamic world that there was freedom there was the proliferation of science there was economic development, all of that sort of stuff happened. And indeed, uh, the great scholar of the Arab world and of Islam itself, Bernard Lewis, I don't know if you've read of him, uh, Imam Duhidi, but he's written a lot of different books. One of them's called What Went Wrong? The Clash Between Islam and Modernity in the Middle East. And he says this, that if Islam is an obstacle to freedom, how is it that Muslim society in the past was a pioneer of it? And this was at a time when Muslims were much closer to the sources and inspiration of their faith than they are now. He goes on to say some of them have indeed posed the question in a different form not what has Islam done to the Muslims, but what have the Muslims done to Islam? And have answered by laying the blame on specific teachers and doctrines and groups. there is a religious war going on in this country it is a cultural war conservative Conservative wine. wine. wine do you think that your faith has been hijacked by specific teachers specific groups within the faith
1: the answer is yes and no yes because human beings will always have contributions uh, to uh, theology and can influence the way books are revered and then turn into law and, and things like that. So that's normal. No, because Islam is not one body. So we've yeah. got 72 different sects and schools of thought, more than 72 actually. And, you know, we're going to have different uh, views. So if someone is a Sunni and says, hey, I want to reform Islam then they can't really reform Shia Islam because it's not their faith, and which means they're not experienced in how the faith is formed. And if a Shia says, hey, I want to reform Sunni Islam, then the same issue applies. I think the idea of reform should be social because if a Sunni says, hey, I'm going to reform my community, try working on a local level, and every Muslim who... You know, believes they are reformists, starts working on the social level, then slowly but surely we will definitely reach a common point where all Muslims begin rejecting child marriage, female genital mutilation, beheading, stoning and so on. But if the Sunni says, no, I want to focus on scripture and the Shia says, I want to focus on scripture, then nothing really will be reformed because I can easily ask a question, have you seen one reformed mosque? Have you seen one reformed Qur'an? Have you seen one jihadi that turned into a reformist? Um, Have you seen an ISIS uh, terrorist that turned around and said, hey, you know what, these reformists have a point, I'm going to become a reformist. It doesn't work like that. You can't reform Mecca from America, from New York, from Sydney. Uh, It it, it just doesn't work like that. It's not real. Islamic reform, in fact, a reformed version of Islam is a, a, a version of Islam that doesn't exist. It exists in conferences, in books, we talk about it, but there is no actual reformed sect in Islam the same way there is in Judaism.
0: So how is it going to be sorted then? I mean, you, you've just painted the picture to me which says that uh, there is unlikely to be reform whatever we mean by that term i mean what i mean by that term is moderation uh there there is uh, you've painted a picture which says to me because of the many different sects because of the many different uh countries because of a whole heap of factors there is unlikely to be uh, substantial reform within the islamic faith would you agree or disagree with that comment
1: within islamic scripture there will never be a reform because people right. memorized the whole scripture. I've memorized the Quran. I mean, uh, the
0: problem, the problem is that, that, that I'm sorry to interrupt, but the problem is that there are people who would ascribe certain behaviors, activities, uh, certain ways of doing things to scripture, not necessarily the Quran. And I'll get to that in a moment. Not, not necessarily the Quran, but they, they would say that there is justification for female genital mutilation within Islamic uh, texts. Now, I know that that's not the case, but there are people out there that argue it. There are people out there that argue that there is a justification that's found within Islamic scripture, again, for child brides. There would be people out there that certainly would argue that there is Justification for the beating of wives within Islamic scripture. So, uh, there is a link that people within the Islamic faith and also observers of the Islamic faith would draw between certain behaviors which you're talking about need to be reformed, social behaviors, and the scriptures themselves. So, just talk me through how. You think that those two things are not linked?
1: They're not linked because the scriptures that order Muslims to stone and to, yeah. uh, you know, harm young girls, uh, FGM and so on, undergo FGM, the, this is not the Quran. There is no verse of stoning in the Quran. Uh, There is no verse of FGM in the Quran. Uh, These are Mm. books, but they're still scriptures. These are books of law by clerics. And when we had caliphates that revered and elevated these clerics, their word became equal to the word of, of the prophet. Uh, they became equal to the word of, of God simply because they have been presented as the custodians of, of the faith and, and the true authentic narrators of, of tradition. So th- that means somehow that their jurisprudential views are also to be taken with the same weight and, and credibility as what they narrate from the prophet. This is the problem. Uh, clerics are not legitimate authorities over people. Uh, the only legitimate authority in Islam over people is the Quran. Everything else can be debated. Everything else can be debated and can be discussed. It's it's the Quran that, is, that brings all Muslims together. And we don't have these problems in the Quran, uh, like, like I said, stoning and so on what there is in the quran is references to uh, violence and war and you know uh, classism where you place christians and jews and people of the book in s- different classes and and i mean that can be easily solved by saying yes islam was a developing religion and what applied then doesn't apply now and we move on Uh, that's one way of looking at it. But we will always come back to the, the issue that is within our societies, is that how can we move forward when we have books by clerics, not by God, or well, at least Muslims don't believe that you know, they're there by God. Books by clerics that are elevated and given to people in prison as though, you know, this is your second chance. Read this book, you'll become a good person. Then, you know, a prisoner go, you know, a criminal goes into prison these days uh, as a thief, you know, someone who stole a car or a drug dealer, and he comes out a jihadi who wants to blow things up. Uh, that's not a real solution. Society needs to be worked on. If I'm going to leave the Muslim community and start focusing on a book that's 1,400 years old, by Mm -hmm. the time I'm finished, I'm not getting any younger. So how much longer am I going to live? And versus do I believe that within the next 50 years I will be seeing a reformed religion? Uh, I will say no. But I do believe that I will see a reformed community. So that is more realistic for us to pursue.
0: So one of the texts that uh, I know you've been critical of, the non-Quranic texts. In fact, it's a it's a Sunni text. Uh, one of the hadiths there, I think, known as the, if I'm pronouncing it right, the Sahih Al Bukhari. Um, and you know, this is one of the texts that uh, really have, has a, a a lot to answer for. Actually, I mean, it's where. A lot of the more extreme uh, actions that uh, uh, that are ascribed to the Islamic religion come from, from apostasy, uh, you know, the prophet it says that a Muslim may not be killed except for three reasons, punishment for murder, for adultery or for apostasy. There's elements in there which says basically the testimony of a woman is worth half of that of a man, uh, stuff about flogging your wife. It's got uh, sections in it which are about genitalia being circumcised, female genitalia. So that's where they draw that from. The things about that, and they're about uh, if a woman commits adultery, have her stone to death. I could go on and on and on because there is, um, you know, a lot that's abhorrent uh, within that particular text. So. Sunnis would see that as a, a major part of the Islamic faith though so ha, how do you remove that from the faith of a of a Sunni Muslim
1: well the answer is very simple george you look at that book that book was written by a man who existed after the prophet muhammad nearly 2 centuries Mm -hmm. So, in no way did he see Muhammad, in no way did Muhammad talk to him, and in no way did he see those who saw Muhammad. Mm -hmm. So, we need to establish that first. The guy came two centuries after Muhammad. Secondly, when he emerged uh, into the scene, he didn't come from Arabia. He came from Bukhara, which is a city in Persia. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, he's Persian, and his Arabic is limited to begin with. Uh, Thirdly, he was blind. So, you know, when, when you're blind, you can write books about things you love, things you feel, things you do. Um, at the end of the day, there is some uh, limit to what you can do and what you can write about when you are blind. Even if, you, if your eyes are working and you're blind from a certain subject, you're unaware of what happened 500 years ago. You can't write about it the same way someone who was there can write about it. And Bukhari, you know, he faces this same issue. One, uh, the book is full of ridiculous statements, full of ridiculous statements. So this violence uh, is, is, is used to somehow justify the fact that the book is a book of law, but the book is ridiculous. So let me just give you an example of what you'll find in that book. With regards to stoning, you'll find in that book that the uh, companion of the prophet once upon a time was walking and he saw a female monkey, uh, you know, ha- m- being intimate with a male monkey and the monkeys gathered around it and they began to stone it. Mm. So uh, you'll find that in, in that book, and as I'm speaking, I'll I'll Google the, uh, the reference for you, but you'll also find issue uh, you'll find issues such as medical advice from the Prophet Muhammad telling people to go and and and, and kidnap owners of camels and uh, kill them and then uh, drink the milk and the urine of the camel, and that way you're, you'll get rid of the flu. Crazy. Now, mm. when I criticize the book, I'm not criticizing Sunni Islam. I'm just saying, hey, you're talking th- that way about my prophet. Okay, you're, you're lying, and you are defaming Islam, and ISIS loves this book, by the way. The book yeah, you're referring yep. to, that's one of the main books of ISIS. Yep. So what is yep. it doing in Sydney mosques in Melbourne? You know, What is it doing in airports? You, you think
0: it should be banned in Australia oh, instead Oh yes.
1: Oh, yes. It's a book that, it's not about Sunni Shia. Look, Shia Islam is a minority. So naturally, we are going to be influenced by such books. So the Bukhari has actually influenced a lot of Shia books as well. So in order for me to uh, address the problem, I will need to mention it, but simply because the author is Sunni and they can't respond to me, what they say is, oh, you're being sectarian."
0: Islamophobia hasn't killed anyone. Uh, Islamist terrorism has now killed tens of thousands of people. Conservative wine. Wine, wine. So, So this... This book, though, like I'm a big believer in freedom of speech, um, but I draw the line when there's incitement to hatred and violence. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit cautious when it comes to religious texts, though. so I want to understand from you why you feel exactly that this book should be banned in Australia.
1: Okay, Uh, just so I don't forget, I said I was going to mention the reference for the uh, female monkey being stoned. It's volume 5, book 58, number 188, or anyone can just Google monkey stoning in the Bukhari, it'll come up. With regards to religious texts, I believe that religious texts do not have authority over the law of the land at all, simply Mm because… Religion came to serve humanity, all religions. That's the main purpose, serve humanity. Humans may serve religion if they believe that it is serving humanity. So I believe that religion is is there to serve my community. Therefore, I continue to serve my my religion. However, uh, many people... Uh, don't see things that way, and by many people I mean within the Muslim community, they think that, yes, religion came to guide, but it also came to rule. And this is the problem. When you take a look at religion as though it is a system to rule and govern, mm-hmm. then you are going to, to oppose the law in order to satisfy your religion, and which b- basically means satisfying God. Uh, but if the vision of religion and God is different, To begin with, so if you believe religion is there to guide people, then you will no longer clash with the law. So let me give you an example. As a Muslim, in my religion, it is not a sin to run a red light. It's not a sin. Like, I will not Mm. be held accountable before God for running a red light. Mm. But it is against the law, and I will be held accountable in court. And Mm. the same applies to marriage you know, uh, it's not against God to get married before the age of 18. But in Australia, the law says 18 and over. So uh, a Muslim needs to choose. It's either law of the land or religion. If you believe religion came to serve humanity, then it will not be given the priority when it comes to law. It will be there as an ethical uh, system that teaches you how to uh, wash, how to clean, how to raise your kids, family values, things like that. Not to take over a government, and because that's where it comes from. The idea of, of militant Islam, Islamism, militant Islam, comes from the, the belief that religion is there to rule. So you'll have Islamist movements that want to rule and govern. Uh, like ut-Tahrir, for example, that we have in yeah, Syria,
0: and so which on. Sh- should be outlawed, as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, Definitely. they're a terrorist organisation in other parts of the world, including even in Indonesia, which is a majority Muslim country.
1: Oh yes, um,
0: I, I agree with um, mostly what you've just said there. I guess that the question that I have is: uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a firm believer, a very, very strong believer in religious liberty, in you know your freedom to follow your faith how you want to follow it, as long as it's not hurting other people. And that's the, the key here, as long as it's not hurting other people. So uh, while I agree that, um, you know, we should obey the law of the land, I get concerned when I do hear about certain laws that have tried to be imposed upon people of faith, and I couldn't care which faith, whether they were Jews, Muslims, Christians, uh, some of the 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 sects out there of Christianity, Jehovah's Witness, Christadelphians, whatever. If there's something imposed upon you by the government and the imposition really isn't around stopping harm to someone else, then I'm not sure that that really is an ethical law. But anyway, that's probably another complete discussion. I want to go to some, some of these things that we've been talking about, you know, social problems, I guess, that we've been talking about. And get your uh, minute-long response to them. You've already talked about female genital mutilation. Uh, you're against it. Why is it wrong? Minute response, if I can.
1: It's wrong because number one, religion does not uh, order it. So even if religion did order it, that would be uh, something that's uh, you know not only debated but also interpreted. And a responsible Muslim will find the interpretation that doesn't call for violence and harming young women. So to begin with, it's a lie. To say that uh, it's it's a religious practice is a lie. It's blasphemy within Islam itself. So it's not in the Quran and it's not in any Islamic law. Secondly, all the reports that we have uh, have been influenced by culture. And culture is usually influenced by the outer culture. So in Africa, for example, in Ethiopia, yeah. uh, female genital mutilation is is rampant amongst the Christians. So Muslims there will, will think that's the norm, especially when they're, they were a minority at the time. I believe it's wrong simply because it violates human rights, and, and it does nothing to preserve the so-called uh, honor that uh, needs to be preserved. Uh, this is how God created uh, man and woman, and changing uh, the human body is uh, against God. Mm. It's, it's, it's undoing what God has done, and that's why I am against it completely. Even if it was in the Quran, we would still need to discuss it.
0: Okay in the in the spirits of religious freedom i gave you 30 extra seconds there so I, I again i'm going to ask you another uh social problem and i want to get your quick minute long response to it um the beating of wives with a rod if the wife disagrees with you what do you think about that
1: against it. And I believe that the entire issue of wife beating has been uh, misunderstood by Muslims. Uh, When uh, Islam emerged in Arabia, the Arabians used to uh, kill their newborn girls because they believed it was a shame to have a daughter. And I believe that um, Islam said instead of Killing them. Why don't you leave? Let them live. And if they bother you, then you could, you know, beat them up. But the the main focus was to try and keep them alive and not get buried immediately. I think it, because look, it's a it's a it's a problem to solve a much bigger problem. So it's a smaller problem, but that's still problematic. We don't live in a society where women get beaten uh, or, or get buried alive, and uh, therefore such a law belong to uh, the Arabians in the deserts. So it doesn't belong to a civilized society.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm going to throw two uh, social problems in here, uh, honor killings or honor beatings, and also people that call for death for the uh, sin of apostasy within Islam. What What's your response to those two problems?
1: Well, with regards to honor killing, there is no honor in killing to begin with. So it's all it all goes back to society. If society believes that a boy can't have a girlfriend and she can't be in love, then they will believe that uh, you know, she's violated the honor of the family. And in other places, there could be other issues that violate the honor of the family, such as, you know, befriending Jewish people or befriending Christians. So there is no system of maintaining honor whatsoever. And uh, then, you know, it all goes back to clerics and what clerics make and how society influences people and the need to change society. It's not in scripture. As for apostasy, that is the biggest uh you know, it, it's it's hypocrisy because I can tell you that, you know, I don't want to say all, but most Muslims have missed a prayer or two. Uh, yeah. Many Muslims have, have lied in their lives. And uh, in a way, they have drifted from religion uh, by doing that. And they've sinned. So there are levels of apostasy. And I believe all Muslims are guilty of some level of drifting away from religion. So to kill someone simply because they have changed their opinion that doesn't exist in the religion whatsoever. That came after the death of the prophet. It was uh, it began by the ridda uh, was by the uh, the first caliph Abu Bakr, uh, who came after the prophet. He was the one who waged war against apostates. Otherwise, people should be free to to believe in whatever they, whatever they want to believe. I mean, Jesus Christ, you know, uh, he came with with Christianity, and Moses came with the Torah, and we Muslims we don't believe that they were followers of, of Muhammad. So, you know, we we love Jesus and we follow Moses and they are they are our prophets. So to, to kill someone because they believe in a different book is, is completely against the religion.
0: The Conservative One Podcast with George Christensen. False child brides, what do you think of that social problem?
1: Anyone that tells you that uh, the prophet married a uh, nine-year-old uh, has largely relied upon the Bukhari. In my book, I refute that. I believe that Aisha was uh, over 18 years old, definitely over 19 years old, and most probably over 21 years old, and that there was a political reason to make her appear as a virgin because, you know, there's a the whole issue of virginity and honor and so on. So they, you know, they decreased her age. And in my book, I provide an al- analysis. And what what that does is I compare the age of her sister uh, and her siblings and I show that no way could she be uh, 4 or 5 or 9 or even 15, you know, the ages they throw around. So that's where it comes from. So yes, it's in religion, but it's in religious scripture outside the Quran. The Quran doesn't say marry nine-year-olds or five-year-olds. That comes from clerics who never saw the Prophet Muhammad and wouldn't have a clue how old his wife was. Uh, All reports, so I'm against it. And that brings me to the, the, the issue I raised earlier. Religion cannot clash with the law. So we can always be religious and not get married to girls who are under 18, there's there's no clash in that. You can be religious and follow the law and not have not make sh- make your daughter undergo FGM. Uh, these practices are barbaric. They don't belong in in our culture, and I'm against them
0: 100%. Foreign fighters, people that uh, have in the past and may continue to in the future, uh, take off from Australia to go and fight for uh, ISIL, uh, Islamic State, that is, or other. Militant Islamic groups and uh, and those that do their bidding here with what they call lone wolf attacks—that is, uh, I should say more correctly, attacks that are directed from afar by Islamic State and other other agencies like that. Um, what do you think of that very big social problem that we have here in Australia?
1: We can call it a social problem, but I call it a reality. Islam is the only religion where a leader in the Middle East can issue a law and someone in Sydney will execute that that law. Uh, Islam is the only religion where a cleric in Mecca can say, kill the Jews, and someone sitting in New York will go out and start attacking Jews. Uh, You won't find that in other religions. This is called the One Muslim Ummah, the One Muslim Nation. So Mm -hmm. if a Muslim believes that they belong to a body, outside the citizenship that they have in Australia or America, then that basically means they are loyal to two to, to, uh, worlds. One is the Muslim world and the second is the world they live in, which is, you know, the planet so, and uh, the citizenship.
0: So how do you fix that? Because, I mean, Roman Catholics uh, technically, you know, there was a lot of sectarianism early in Australia and people said that about Roman Catholics or they take their orders from the Vatican, uh, but the reality is, you know, there's nothing like that that goes on within Roman Catholicism. So how do you fix the, the, the issue, the problem of people within our country who would put the laws that are being decreed by some self-styled Umar um, leader in, in the Middle East somewhere uh, over the laws of the land?
1: I think what what is missing in uh, Australia is that the education system doesn't emphasize the importance of the law, especially in social studies. They tend to uh, speak about the uh, history of Australia and the Aboriginal people and, and issues uh, surrounding that, but there is no importance to the law. Whereas, Whereas, if you take a look at the lectures in the mosques, they're all focused around Sharia law and how a Muslim can be a good Muslim by praying, fasting, and just following Islamic law if we can have the equivalent of that in our schools that teach young children that the law is important, the law is there for our own benefit to protect us and so on, then they would also have the equal appreciation to the law of the land. And they would, as they grow, they would be you know, they'd be able to realize that there there are two types of laws that govern them. One is religious, which belongs at home, which concerns praying and fasting and charity, and the other is the law of the land, and that's how we interact with each other when we're outside in public.
0: So I'm getting near the end of this long list of social issues or social problems, but there are some within Islam who call for legal pluralism. And this really has to do with Sharia. Sharia being Islamic law, everyone has heard about that, and about the concept of having Islamic law sitting side by side with um, common law, the law of the land. Uh, How do you feel about this push by some within the Muslim
1: community? Terrified. Terrified. Because we fled, and many Muslims in Australia, they fled Islamic governments. And those who are calling for that are a minority, but the problem is they're a very loud minority and a very rich minority and a minority that is able to build flashy mosques and donate they seem to, be to
0: political influential. Artists.
1: Yes, yeah. yes, uh, and that's the main issue. Otherwise, there are a minority of Muslims that want Sharia law alongside. Uh, common law. No way. Believe you me. Go outside to Muslim areas and tell them, "Hey, would you want the mufti to be advising the prime minister?" Most of them will say, "No way." That's the main reason why we are here. We came to escape the muftis and and the clerics who used to govern with the sword and used to influence uh, and still do influence uh, governments in the Middle East. Uh, no, not all Muslims want that. But the, the again, the problem is those who do are very powerful and sometimes the majority fear them and they just don't want any problems to do with them.
0: The former grand imam of the Al-Azhar Mosque, which is one of the highest sort of the seats of learning within the Sunni world, uh, I think his name was um, Sheikh Tantawi, Sheikh Mohammed Tantawi. He confronted a young girl, in Britain, in England, when he was visiting there, who was wearing a niqab in a class full of a girl colleagues. And he said, well, why are you wearing that? And she said, because it's my faith. And he made the call there that the niqab is a tradition, but it's got nothing to do with Islam. And he actually said to her that if you are a Muslim, I insist that you don't wear that anymore, that that's got nothing to do with Islam. It's a mere custom and I understand the faith better than you and better than your parents, so I'm telling you, take it off. He uh, actually went so far as to the university that was attached to that mosque, which you you would be aware of at the Al-Azhar University. He he banned the wearing of facial coverings uh, in that mosque, and I think that that might still be the case today. So there's a question of whether or not, Facial coverings are something that is directly related to Islam, or whether it's one of these bastardizations of the faith. Uh, I got to say, I've got an issue with it. I don't think that we should allow facial coverings in Australia, of any kind, including the uh, the, the the violent uh, protesters that uh, cover their face in the streets. It is completely against the sort of the way we go about living socially in this country, where your face sends so many signals, so many signals. We understand what you mean by your face. Culturally, this is a very, very big thing. So I'm wanting to get your view on facial coverings such as the burqa and the kneecap and their their usage in Australian society.
1: I am 100% against the burqa. My ex-wife wore the burqa and I have lived with it so and in addition to her mother and her family so I'm not just someone who sees them roaming around in the shopping malls I actually lived with them I know what it means to wear a burqa I know what it does to a a woman uh, to her self-esteem, to, to many things, many things. It even goes down to mental health. And anyone that tells you, oh, my God, this is my faith, I love it, none of them are honest as far as I'm concerned. So there why, is-
0: why would they wear it? Why did they choose? Like, you know, that's what people say to me, oh, they choose to wear it. Uh, I disagree with that. It's, it's, it's almost uh, uh, like a cultural dominance. And in some cases, yes. it's actually the man of the house uh, is imposing this 100 wife and or daughters so
1: 100%. there is a
0: degree of imposition and oppression when it comes to
1: this 100% you know why because I was in that position when I was married to my ex-wife uh, I was a fundamentalist muslim and to make me happy she wore the burqa and when I changed I became more open minded and you know embraced other other religious leaders jews and so on our relationship didn't work out. But the point I'm trying to make is to satisfy me, she wore the burqa. Mm. So it's not because she wanted to. And even before I married her to satisfy her dad, she wore the burqa. So the idea that they're doing this to uh, please God, firstly, God didn't ask for it and God didn't uh, order anyone to wear it. And secondly, it's mainly them wanting to appear pious and religious in front of the community, in front of their family members, and also to give a good image to their uh, husbands who belong to a fundamentalist community. But this is the question I have for all Muslim women that wear a burqa. In Islam, Mary, the mother of Jesus, enjoys a very high status, mm-hmm. very very high status. She's considered to be a mistress of the universe, one of the four mistresses Marianne. of the universe. Mary, yes, exactly. We call her Maryam, Mary. And uh, did Mary wear a burqa? Did the the wife of uh, the Prophet Muhammad wear a burqa? Uh, did his daughter? Did uh, Asiya? Uh, the uh, the wife of Pharaoh who's, who saved Moses and who's considered to be a very noble lady. None of these women covered themselves that way. You know, it, society, when it focuses on sexualizing women, then uh, a face becomes a, a reason to get aroused. You know, we don't live in that world. And then they come up with these... Uh, Examples that, if you remember uh, Tajuddin Al Hilali, the Can't former mufti of yep. uh, yes, who said about who said King, that uh, can meat, yeah yeah, 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 that yeah, 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 So you see, it's not an issue of religion; it's an issue of him believing or once believed. I don't know if he changed his opinion that women are like meat and they need to be covered. Perhaps we should stop looking at women like meat, and then there would be no reason for them to fear. A community that could rape them and look at them indecently, and so on.
0: Yes. Well, look, uh, I've gone well over what I intended to uh, to go with you, but it's been a very interesting discussion, and I think that there is, um, you know, there are a lot of social problems out there that uh, that need to be dealt with, and within the Islamic faith, and so brave voices like yours that are speaking out for. That social reform ought to be encouraged. So I thank you very much for everything you're doing. Before we wrap up, though, can I just ask you the question that I ask uh, nearly all of the people that come onto my show? If you were Prime Minister for the day, what's the one thing that you would do, Imam
1: Tawheedi? Deport everyone under the terrorist watch list. Where would you send them to? Back to where they came from. Yeah. Even if it were, even if it, if that made them stateless. Yep. Because and I can live with a bad economy, but I can't live with people who want to kill and behead and do actually kill and behead people.
0: You think that they, those people in our community that are on these watch lists, that pose that much of a threat to Australians, that they need to go?
1: hundred percent, because that's what happens to them in Muslim countries. You will never find five hundred people under watch in Saudi Arabia. They're either in prison or they're deported, especially Mm. if they have dual citizenships.
0: It's quite scary knowing that those people are out there that have such hatred for our country and people who are within our country. I sympathize greatly with that argument. Uh, So, look, thank you very much for sharing your views. Tell us about that book again. What's the title so my listeners can remember it?
1: The Tragedy of Islam.
0: Available on Amazon and you're updating the book and it should be available December this year. So remember that, folks, uh, the tragedy of Islam. Thank you very much for your time, Imam Tohidi. God bless you and everything you're doing.
1: God bless you too. Thank you for having me, George. Goodbye. We will decide who comes to this
0: country and the circumstances in which they come. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. You've been listening to The Conservative One Podcast with
1: George Christensen. God bless.